This is a Federal News Network podcast. She's young. She majored in a science and technology field at a good university, and she chose to work for the federal government. Exception to the rule? Maybe. But let's find out. Patent examiner Brooke LaBranch joins me now. Ms. LaBranch, good to have you in. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. In studio here. And first of all, if you don't mind my asking, you are a federal employee. You work for the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. How old are you? I'm 28 years old. So that qualifies you as somewhere between Z and millennial. Yeah, right in the middle. All right. So let's talk about your background, education. I mean, what took you to the point at which you were qualified and then decided to work for the federal government. Where'd you go to school? What'd you major in? Sure. Yeah, I went to the University of Virginia and majored in biomedical engineering, which qualified me to be a patent examiner because they do require a STEM background, either engineering or a hard science degree to be qualified for that. And growing up STEM areas, the technical areas you liked and were your forte? Yeah, it was always something I was most interested in. Um, My mom had a nursing background. My dad was an engineering background. So I kind of grew up around that kind of atmosphere. Yeah. So in the table, in the kitchen table with the drawer, there were slide rules in your family. (laughs) Right, right. And did you find going back, I guess it begins in elementary school, but did you find support in the area that you grew up in and went to school in for women in and young girls, I guess, in elementary school for STEM? Yeah, we actually, um, the high school I went to, I was in a program that specialized in uh, science and engineering and technology. It was called a math and science program. And so that was a kind of like a high school magnet school that we were able to apply to and go to. So you could, you know, specialize in different areas if that's what you're interested in. So you've been basically immersed in this your whole life. Right. Yep. All right. And uh, do you find math especially to be something more of a language than something to be struggled over, as people often do? Oh, absolutely. It's definitely a language and requires, you know, more of a problem-solving mind than anything else to kind of navigate your way through. And for biomedical engineering, what are the other elements besides, I guess, math is foundational to all of the sciences and engineering arts, but in biomedical, what are some of the other things you need to know? Yes. So it's a lot of uh, science and physics combined, really. So uh, biomechanics, biomaterials are really important, um, nanotechnology, a lot of programming as well is involved. In, in biomedical engineering, so kind of computer science it gets into. Yeah, when you get really deep into biology, I guess it's hard to know, is it chemical or is it mechanical? Because chemistry is how things behave mechanically at the atomic level, I guess, right? Right. Yeah, it's definitely at the intersection of both of those. And we've run out about what I know about it. And then you graduated college, and what attracted you to federal service, of all things? Well, so initially, I was really interested in federal service because the application process was very straightforward. Um, They provided a lot of information on the requirements, the background you needed to have to be qualified for the job. Um, The compensation and salary was very visible and readily available, so you know what you're getting into before you apply, not, you know, halfway through the application process or even once the point where you get an offer, then you're, you know, kind of wrapping your head around what you're going to be offered. And also the promotion potential was made available to you right from the start. So you kind of have an idea of how far you have to go once you're in that position. Sure. But with respect to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, I mean, as a biomedical engineer, probably the agriculture department has opportunities for that type of work. I imagine somewhere in interior, maybe NIH, Health and Human Services. And so Did you look at those places also? What was it about patent examining that attracted you? 
Yeah, patent examining was very interesting to me because there was such a a broad spectrum of technologies that you could be exposed to, and when you first you know apply and get into it, you don't know exactly what you what area you're going to be dealing with. Um, so it's kind of exciting in that sense that there's there's going to be something new basically every day that you that you show up to work or get on your computer. The different applications that you're looking at all involve something different. We're speaking with Brooke LeBranch. She's an examiner with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and just. A final question on the federal hiring process. It has a reputation for being horrible and taking months and months and months. What was your experience? The hiring process at the patent office uh, was was pretty simplified compared to that. Um, it was a 10-week process. There was a, a table, like a timeline that was provided along with the with the job opening. So you know exactly once you post your application um, and the on USA Jobs, once the vacancy closes, there's a pretty strict timeline that they follow. And so my experience was, was right along with the timeline that they proposed. And did you also look at industry jobs or commercial jobs? I did. I looked at uh, different pharmaceutical companies, um, some medical device sales companies, and the work here was just a little bit more interesting and, you know, fell into what my strengths already were. And what was the onboarding process like? I mean, you have been there a few years now, so it was not pandemic, but PTO has always been a big telework agency even before the pandemic. Right. Onboarding was all in person. We were in, they're called labs. They were groups of around 10 of us, and we had, you know, a few teachers per lab group. And we spent four months there basically just learning how to do the job, um, learning everything from the MPP to looking at our first cases and getting the ball rolling with, you know, starting to understand the examination process. So you had four months to get to know colleagues and supervisors in an in-person setting. Right. And then pretty much telework beyond that. So back before the pandemic, they did have us stay at the office for a little bit longer. I I believe it was around two years. And then you had the option to start um, teleworking as as was seen fit. So that time was really good to be in the office to kind of get to know people and be able to ask questions a little easier, to be across the hallway from your supervisor and go get help if you needed that. And what is the day-to-day or hour-to-hour type of work like for a patent examiner? You get I guess they assign the cases to you, and then what do you do? Somebody invented a new earbud or something, I don't know, and then what do you have to do? Right. So we have we have a docket full of cases that have been assigned to us, like you said. So on the day-to-day, I will you know open up new cases that have been assigned and kind of familiarize myself with those technologies and you know what the inventive feature is of that particular application. Um, and then I'll begin a process of searching through a database of patents that have already been issued or disclosures of patent applications. And I'll be looking for something that is, is similar and maybe is overlapping in scope and seeing how the claims of the new application compare to what's already uh, been out there and has been disclosed. Um, so after I do that, I'll, I'll spend some time writing office actions, which are the um, official correspondences between the office and the applicant. And those will include um, any minor, minor informalities that need to be fixed, rejections in view of the prior art, and any allowable subject matter that I see. And just in general, what is the rate of rejection versus granting 
in the field? That's a hard question to answer because it varies a lot based on different technologies. Um, and that is all information that's made publicly available. So there's a lot of transparency about what those allowance rates are. But you have turned down people. Yes. So there is a process of rejection and then applicant will come back with making amendments to their claims. And there's there's interactions between the office and the applicant to try to get claims to an allowable state. Um, but if there is the case where there's an application that just doesn't have any um, you know, novel material in it, then eventually that case would likely go abandoned. And have you ever had someone maybe object in a way that's not just through the formalities, but say, who are you to tell me I can't patent this? No. Um, you know, usually it doesn't get to a, a personal level like that. It's very... Either the art is out there or it's not, and there's kind of a very formal correspondence between the examiner and the applicant. So it it doesn't kind of get to the wondering if someone has the authority to say this or that. It's kind of very black and white. All right. And do you like your work? Um, Yeah, absolutely. I do love working there. It's it's great to have the work-life balance that we do. Like you mentioned, the telework policies, the patent office has always been you know, leaders in allowing for telework. Um, and so it gives me the opportunity to really focus and enjoy the work that I do and put out high-quality work, but also not sacrifice in other areas of my, of my life. And say the friends that you went to school with, that you might still be in touch with, any of them feds? Not a lot, actually. I might be one of the only ones that I know from, from college, yeah. But you would do it again. Yeah, definitely. Brooke LaBranch is an examiner with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy. His name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her. I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether 
you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is 
I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.